This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Tulio Suragusa with Dojo Live. Today is Wednesday, July 15th, 2020, tax day for those of you who haven't filed. How fun. Welcome to the show. I'm broadcasting from Los Angeles, and I am joined today by my co-host and co-producer, Carlos Ponce from just outside Mexico City. Welcome, Carlos. Here we go. One more time. One more time, Tulio. Thank you. And today we have a guest, Reed Blackman, who is the founder and CEO of Virtue. Hi, Reed. Pleasure to have you on the show. Reed is uh, dialing in from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, tell us about yourself a little bit. Love to get the audience to learn about who Reed is. Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So my name is Reed Blackman. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Virtue. It's an ethics consultancy. So a little bit about myself, my main background is in philosophy. So I was a philosophy professor for a decade prior to leaving academia, leaving the ivory tower and starting out as a consultancy. Um, what I really care about is ethics, helping people infuse ethics into their businesses, into operations, into product development, and that sort of thing. Interesting. Well, welcome to the show. We, we, we're looking forward to having this conversation. I'm sure uh, you've already had a slew of philosophers on your show. <laughs> we, I mean, aren't we all? But uh, yeah. no, but, uh, but we yeah. love hearing from uh, academia, ex-academia, because it, there's yeah. you bring an aspect of things that sometimes we haven't thought of, and, and that's sure, sure. valuable, right? Um, but tell us about Virtue. What what does the company do? What gave birth to this idea? Please give us a little background on the company. Yeah, sure. So the company itself is about operationalizing ethics, especially operationalizing digital ethical risk mitigation. So. A lot of companies are developing, they're gathering mass tropes of data. They're using that data often to train their machine learning algorithms. And there are all sorts of well-documented ethical and reputational risks that people are familiar with, right? Privacy violations, black box algorithms, discriminatory algorithms, uh, and so on and so forth. There's lots of problems, right? So the thing is that most people, um, not 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 non-culpably, don't have a very firm grip on how to think about ethics in a business context. Um, how do you systematically identify um, those ethical risks, and then how do you go about systematically mitigating them? And so that's where someone like like me comes in. Um, I've been thinking about researching, publishing, teaching on ethics for twenty years, um, and so we can come in and create a digital ethics program and then scale that throughout the organization. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more. I love the comment you made, you know, sometimes people don't uh, necessarily follow ethics, not of the fault of their own or on purpose. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about that, but why don't we just go right into it. Yeah. Carlos, what's the topic that uh, Reed has chosen today? Let's, uh, let's go right into the conversation, see where, where, where this takes us. Absolutely, Tulio. Thank you so much, and thanks, Reed, for being here. Today, today, Tulio, we're going to be speaking about op operationalizing data and AI ethics, and we're going to be answering the question of how does ethical data or AI mitigate risk and create efficiency? So, Reed, tell us about this. Why did you choose this particular topic, and why did you think it was relevant for today's show? So it's the thing that I care about the most, and it's the thing that led me to leave academia. So. You know, I said I was in academia for you know, 20 years, quite a long time, professor for 10 of those years. 
Um, before that, of course, I was a grad student and an undergrad. And what made me leave academia was seeing companies doing all sorts of unethical things, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, and knowing that it matters to their businesses that they're doing these things. Um, this first you know, be became obvious when Cambridge Analytica broke out, right? And we had hashtag delete Facebook. And then there are other kinds of social movements, um, most obviously Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. But then you also saw engineers ringing the alarm bells around um, artificial intelligence or you know, machine learning and all the kinds of massive societal impacts that are going on there. And I thought, oh, there's actually really big problems here. There's society impacting, there are ethical issues, of course, that I've based my entire career on. And they're, they're business risks at this point. They're not just sort of PR disasters because we have a lot of people who really care about whether companies are conducting themselves in an ethical manner, whether they're building and deploying products in an ethical way. And that's somewhere where I thought I could help. So, and then it turns out to, you know, not quite to my surprise, but to my happiness that ethics runs really deep with a lot of people. Um, they, almost surprisingly, they care about it a lot. And, I think people don't really know how to take that concern and drive it into their business operations. And so I think that's the place where I can help. And so that's why, you know, you asked, what, what do I like to talk about? That's the kind of thing that I like to talk about. Um, one, because I think it speaks to a need and a desire that individuals and businesses have, and it speaks to my expertise. Excellent. So um, what are some examples of companies that have failed miserably like this that has triggered the need yeah. to bring in someone like yourself for example to help establish uh you know ethical standards for the organization We'd love to just hear some examples of yeah. what could be a sort of red flag triggering the need for this because there may be some companies that are doing some things but not aware like you said yeah. so if they're listening love to just at least bring awareness to couple of examples of like red flags that people ought to think about, hey, it's time for you to put in place some ethical uh, ethics uh, and standards in place. Please yeah. share some stories if you could. Yeah, sure. I'll, and I'll, obviously I'll focus on the data and the AI stuff. So take, take, um, take IBM. So IBM has collected a lot of data with their weather app. And IBM is now being sued by the city of Los Angeles, you know, where you are right now. Um, so your city is suing IBM for misappropriation of the data that they collected with their weather, with their weather app, you know, collected and things that they shouldn't have collected, allegedly, um, things they used in various ways, they shouldn't have used in that ways, again, allegedly. But there's a real concern by the state, of, by the city of Los Angeles that the data of its citizens was misappropriated. And so now we have, they have a lawsuit on their hands. Um, Optum was in, Optum uh, Healthcare was in the news uh, I think it was this past December, so not that long ago. Um, they were in the news because they are being investigated by regulators for having an AI algorithm that allegedly um, discriminates against black people. More specifically, it was an algorithm, or it is an algorithm, that makes recommendations to doctors and nurses about what patients to pay attention to. And allegedly, the algorithm um, recommended that doctors and nurses pay more attention to white patients than to sicker black patients. That's a pretty classic case, standard case of um, bias or discriminatory algorithms and machine learning. And quick note, this doesn't have to be intentional. Um, in a lot of these cases in which, may, uh, the vast majority of which there's bias or 
discrimination built into an algorithm. It's done so unintentionally with no particular or explicitly biased attitudes on the part of the developers, the product managers, or anything of the sort. Um, Amazon was in the news because they actually had to junk their um, AI hiring software, which systematically discriminated against women. Goldman Sachs is being investigated uh, by regulators for allegedly discriminating against women uh, in determining a credit limit for the Apple card, but using AI to determine credit limits. Anyway, there's, you know, what did I just wow. give you, four or five examples? Wow. So, so okay, so in some cases, it was just, I mean, most of these algorithms set, are set up by data scientists, by yeah. technical folks who are just trying to create models to extrapolate and extract data to create intelligence that can be used for some kind of smart business execution. Yeah. I can totally see where someone well-intentioned is like, well, we get the more data we have, there's a pattern that's emerging. Based on this pattern, this is what we recommend. And yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes the good intent, you know, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. So yeah. if you're the kind of business, what I'm hearing is if you're in the kind of business where you're collecting, at least collecting consumer data uh, or any kind of behavioral data from consumers, yeah. then you probably ought to look at how you're going to apply it so that you don't unnecessarily create an environment where you could be construed as like, hey, the algorithm is actually having a bias towards a certain group of people even though it wasn't intended to do that. So how does a company, what are some of the steps a company should think about in terms of how they weave this into their product roadmap, their actual product yeah. strategy? What yeah. are some, because I never hear someone say, oh, let's stop and look at this now, right? Yeah. Where does that come in? Where do you suggest that that begins to become a discussion during the product life cycle? Yeah, so great, great question. Really, really great question. Um, and I'll say, I'll say why it's such a great question because it immediately reveals why the standard approach to these issues doesn't work. So you take, for instance, um, a lot of the big tech companies, the first thing that they did, Google, for example, they came out with their AI ethics principles. And there are loads of these principles all around, um, you know, where for fairness, where for uh, accountability, where for transparency, blah, blah, blah. Um, but these principles, because they're so vague, they don't get operationalized. Um, they don't get built into workflow for product developers. And so your question is exactly the right one. It's the question that most of the tech community has um, has failed to ask. They're beginning to, I can say more about this if you like, they're beginning to sort of catch on to this and figure out, trying to work on how to operationalize these things, but it's still very early days. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be a lot about process and practice, right? So, so for instance, you know, the product managers have to play a, a certain kind of role in this. They have to be financially incentivized to play a role. They have to figure out what the standards are um, and then talk about those standards with the developers and make sure that it gets built into the product. It needs to be built into the into the product lifecycle. So when you're just you know at the concept phase, start thinking about the ways in which you can ethically screw things up. So there needs to be a kind of due diligence process. A lot of people like to talk about ethical checklists. Um, but then, of course, it's not about whether the checklist is created, it's how it was created. So was it created with the input of the developers? Um, is the checklist tailored to the needs of those people who are making that particular kind of product where this kind of approach to fairness is appropriate, but that kind of approach is not? Um, does that begin to answer your question? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to kind of get a picture. I was thinking to myself, even in an agile environment, right? So someone's developing the stories for their sprint uh, for the week or the, the next two weeks. And in that, there's the design, there's the development, then there's QA, right? There's uh, yep. all these practices to ensure good quality code. But yep. what I'm hearing is somewhere in there, someone needs to start inserting an ethical review, ethics review. Yeah. But in order to effectively do that, you'd have to put in place what those ethics need to look like. So how do, what are the steps? Does a, does a, how does a company prepare themselves in order to then put those processes in place? Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of things. So first, you have, to, you have to get a kind of ethics framework, right? So right, what, what are the values that we're actually going to um, strive to realize? Or in my view, more importantly, what are the disvalues we want to avoid, right? What are the ethical nightmare situations that get us that invite lawsuits, regulatory investigations, loss of consumer trust, et cetera? So what are those things? Um, you know, who are the stakeholders involved? Whose welfare do we really want to focus on here? And do we want to make sure not to harm? Um, and then let's make sure that uh, trickles down to when we're developing the product. So, you know, let me give you let me give you a slightly more concrete example. All right. So we talked about those bias out those those discriminatory algorithms or biased algorithms. Um, one of the problems there is that one way that bias creeps into the to the system is that the data set doesn't isn't doesn't resemble say the general population in the right sort of way right so you've got some facial recognition software you train it on a million white faces and a hundred black faces it's going to turn out it's really bad at recognizing black faces and really good at recognizing white faces um so on and so forth right so you want to make sure that you have a sort of balanced and and uh, uh, a data set that represents the population well so one thing that you're going to want is you're going to want your the product the, the the developers to talk to the data collectors and say hey listen this is the kind of product that we want to build we're going to need this the data that we're going to that we need to train our model on it has to look like this here's how we think about what a balanced and fairly you know good representation of the of the data set looks like um so that's the kind of thing that we need you to go out and get Right, so because otherwise the data collectors will just hoover up as much data as they possibly can, and then give the modelers as much data as they have, and then those models will just take all that data and train their algorithm. And you know, because there's no there's no intentionality there, you're going to get um, bias built in. But if the developers think about the ways in which the bi the data sets might be biased from the outset, and can have a conversation with the data collectors about it, and there's a explicit process by which that conversation is, you know, there's a place where that conversation has to go in the course of our development, then you're ensuring that that conversation happens and that the data collectors are sensitive to the kinds of data that they're collecting and how they're cleaning it, so on and so forth. Does that, does that help? I'll, I'll say, let me yeah. just say one more thing. And it's not as though you can just say, make sure that the, the data is fair, that the data is unbiased. Because different kinds of different ways of measuring fairness will be appropriate for different kinds of applications. So statistical parity might be really important when you're talking about, say, hiring. Let's say you're pushing out job ads um, and you want to make sure that it doesn't just show those good jobs, you know, high paying jobs, whatever, to white people that, you know, people of color also see those job ads. So then you might want something like statistical parity that, you know, the percentages of the populations are reflected in who actually gets to see those ads. 
But that metric of fairness doesn't make any sense if you're doing something like image captioning, right? That's just that that's not relevant. Um, and so different kinds. And so when you're doing things like, you know, you don't want it to be the case that all the pictures of doctors are men and all the pictures of nurses are women. That's what some people call an associative bias. Um, but the notion of statistical parity is going to be relevant there. And so, so when you create conceptions of what constitutes fairness, it's often going to have to be at a per product or at least per product category level. And then it'll have to be um, tailored to the individual products that are being made. It's very interesting observation. I know you have a question. I just want to make an interesting uh, comment. I've been an advisor to a couple of AI companies in the past, and that never crossed anybody's mind. It was always, you know, the algorithm and the, the machine will learn and come up with the outcome. So, yeah. you know, the mindset's been, well, you know, you're removing the ego out of it because the machine is doing the work. But what I'm hearing is without, you know, telling the machine to to be cognitive of the fact that it could, to avoid certain biases, then you're kind of leaving it a potluck, which creates a risk. Yeah. Is that a so, fair statement? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so look, a lot of the ways that the, so look, what does machine learning do? Essentially, it's a pattern recognizer, right? So why did, um, why did Amazon's machine learning software um, discriminate against women? Well, because it took the hiring, all the hiring, it took, you know, 10,000 resumes over the past, you know, 10 years or whatever it was. Um, and it, it, those resumes were, were, were tagged, you know, led to a hire, didn't lead to a hire. And then the machine recognized a certain pattern. We hire men, we don't hire women. And so it started taking out, you know, as it were, red lighting the resumes that were women's resumes. For instance, I might um, read the resume, you know, using NLP and it says NCAA women's basketball. And so that thing gets red lighted. Now, why is it that Amazon tended to hire more men than women? Um, there are a variety of explanations. One is yes, there's there's just sort of, you know, there's there's bias in the hiring system generally. That's one explanation. The other is you might say more societal that um, there are more men in STEM fields than there are women, and so there's going to be a lot more men in the in the pool of candidates, and so of course more men are going to get hired. But the algorithm just interprets that as you know, the thing that we do is hire more men than women, or we don't really hire women, we hire men. Um, so that's just some, you know, some bias in the data set that gets unintentionally reflected in the model. And then there's a question about, okay, well, what's the strategy for mitigating the risk? Do we now go and do we want to reassess our data set? Do we want to reassess our model? Do we want to change the objective function? What's the thing that we should do to mitigate that, to mitigate those biases? And now you need a process by which the potential strategies are identified, um, the various you know probabilities of effectiveness and the cost of those strategies is assessed, and then a decision is made about which strategy to pursue, and that gets handed back to the developers to say, okay, here is how you should go about mitigating those biases. Reid, I got a question, and this is more of an educational, personal education nature for me because I haven't been yeah. like Tulio. Uh, Tulio has been around for forever, like more than three decades in technology, and I haven't. So, uh, my question is this: Ever since you've been in business uh, with Virtue, and well, I, I understand that your focus is helping companies uh, integrating ethics in the development and deployment of, of even emerging technology. Technology in this context, along the ride, along the journey that you've um, 
that you take in, have you ever seen any kind of um, uh, product that was intended to be deployed and had to be stopped stone cold because of there was some, you know, issue with it's uh, the ethics and everything, pretty much everything that you're talking about for any reason whatsoever. You don't have to say any, you know, any brands or names, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. specific, you know, things that happened as an anecdotally that you can share with us and with the audience so that we can, maybe we can be on the lookout. <laughs> yeah. My, I mean, grandma, my grandmother used to say, reveal the sin, not the sinner. Exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, so look, usually if someone is working with me, then they already have a sense that there is something going on, right? Um, uh, it's usually, oh, we're aware of these risks. We started to see these risks. We've seen people raising questions about it. The engineers are raising concerns. Um, and so, of course, I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen certain things come, come along. Um, usually when I get involved, sometimes I get involved at the product level. Um, that, that certainly happens where I'll help them work through product development and deployment, you know, what best practices are for deployment. And also, hey, what are the features that you should or should not include in here from an ethics perspective? And what are the ways that you can, you know, more responsibly develop this product, say, train the model? So that happens. A lot of times when I get involved, though, it's more along the lines of we don't know what we don't know. We're we're collecting a ton of data. We are um, building, you know, machine learning applications, uh, models, and you know, we've had these ethics issues sort of pop up here and there. And frankly, we're just we don't have a way of of attacking that problem. So we want to go about doing it systematically. How do we build out? a data ethics risk program. And that that's where I come in. So I because I'm not in, I'm not standardly embedded in a team or embedded in a company deeply, it's not that I see a, you know, someone, you know, pull the cord on some particular product. Okay. But that's going on for sure. Interesting. I mean, it sounds to me that uh for I mean, VCs or, or investors probably have that question in their checklist and their due diligence checklist, if you're investing in an AI company or a company that's, I mean, it sounds to me that that would be appropriate to begin to ask yeah. those questions. Do you have an ethics yeah. standard? What is, how are you going to handle this? Because the last thing you want to do is invest in a company that has a lot of promise. The data works, the algorithm works, but the outcomes reveal something that causes a lawsuit and unintentionally yeah. causes bias, which could have been avoided by simply having a, a question that says, what's your standard? And if you don't have one, let's put one in place to avoid that from happening. Yeah. Um, how many companies are proactively doing that? And are VCs proactively doing that? Are you seeing that pattern? Or is that something like it's early days and this is part of the educational process to bring awareness to this issue? Yeah, great question. So uh, I don't think VCs are doing this. Um, you know. I think they ought to, they should, um, for purely self-insured reasons, to your point, they don't want their investment blowing up. You know, one suspects that if there had been a proper ethical due diligence, if SoftBank had done a proper ethical due diligence, they wouldn't have wound up with a bomb on their hands. Um, but they're not. Partly that might be because um, they're risk takers by nature, right? Venture capitalists are into the risk game. Um, and the other, on the other side of the coin, um, the startups, they're not incentivized to do it either. They're incentivized to develop an MVP and start getting enterprise clients as soon as possible, um, in part to satisfy those investors, right? So it's harder in the startup world. I've worked with startups, but you know they don't always have the budget for it and the VCs are not pushing it. 
The places where we're seeing a lot of action is actually the big tech companies, unsurprisingly. So um, Microsoft is probably the most aggressive on, on this. You know, they've got a number of departments within um, that are working on both research, they're doing you know, research on operationalizing AI ethics, data ethics, et cetera. Um, they're working on, and they actually have practitioners who are working on operationalizing it. Um, I think it's still early there, but at least they have, you know, they have like a one department called the Ethics and Society Division, and they, I think they have something like a two dozen people working there. Um, Facebook recently set up a responsible innovation program. Um, recently, less than a year, but there, from what I from what I understand, and I you know I know the people who are running it, uh, the, you know, they're doing a lot of hiring and they're trying to be very active on this. Twitter is getting into the game. Um, they are. Um, they're working on machine learning ethics and integrating that into product development very early for them. But the big tech companies, there's no doubt that they're doing it. Um, and they're actually putting, you know, for them, not a lot of money, but, you know, putting together relatively substantial, by, by most other companies' measures, pretty substantial teams. So I would say that the, most of the activity that is by the big tech companies. And then there are other companies, of course, the ones, for instance, that I work with who are, um, not necessarily massive tech companies, but they're dealing with a tremendous amount of data, building ML, et cetera. And so they're beginning to pay quite a bit of attention. Well, that's good news. I mean, most of the founders of the startups come from some of those big tech companies. So hopefully they'll bring those standards with them as they move forward. Yeah. Um, any plan, so today to, how do you go about sniffing out those, those challenges? Is this a manual process? Do you have some yeah. kind of a software that goes in and looks for these anomalies. Is that potentially yeah. something that could be developed? How does yeah. the company proactively check against its uh, algorithm to say, hey, is this following you know, good ethical standards? Uh, is it manually done or is there software to do that today? Yeah, so you know, it, it'll, it varies. I mean, look, essentially what, what we go in, we can do a gap analysis, you can do a risk analysis, right? It's, a, it's, it's not a, you can't just run a piece of software to see what, what, what it is that they're doing. The thing that's really important here that I, I sort of mentioned, and in fact, you mentioned it, um, is that you really have to dovetail this stuff with existing infrastructure. Like you just can't, if, it, if it's just sort of its own thing separate from say, cyber practices or data governance practices, then it's less likely to work, right? So mm. ideally there's already things in place where you can start. So for instance, mm. if a company has a data governance program, um, which often includes a data governance board. That's a great place to start. Okay, you're the data governance board. You're already dealing with certain kinds of risks, right? Um, mm. Cyber risks, for instance, legal risk, regulatory risks. So if you're already dealing with those kinds of risks, let's look at the framework that you're using in order to vet those risks, to have those conversations, to make those decisions. And let's fold into the kinds of considerations that you're, the conversations you're already having, a layer of ethical due diligence. Let's fold it in there. And if, if you need a framework, to add on to the framework that you already have, and we'll help you build that out. And once that's built out, uh, built out, then you can see, okay, let's do a sort of gap analysis or risk analysis of where we need to infuse this ethics framework, and then build a strategic roadmap and start executing on it. Sounds to me like if you're serving on a board and you're uh, uh, leading the ethics committee, this is definitely something you want to have in there as a checklist item or a to-do for the organization to get behind. 
Uh, we're coming up on time, Reed. It's been great. It's been very educational. I, I certainly okay. got a lot out of it, and and it made me realize, you know, if you ever build an AI company, this is definitely something to put in place to uh, to to do the right thing from the get-go. Um, and yeah. um, so I, I, we're coming up on time. Tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you making that transition from academia into the business world. Yeah. Anything you've learned throughout that process about yourself, about becoming an entrepreneur that you'd like to share with the audience as we wrap up? Huh, that's really, that's a great question. I mean, you know, since I was in academia for so long, um, we ask, what's amazing about academics is that we go after questions um, and we answer those questions in a very systematic way and in an exhaustive way. That's what we're really good at. The problem is that most academics ask, most ethicists, uh, philosophers ask irrelevant questions to businesses because the questions that academics are asking are usually things like, should we do this? Would it be a good idea to have to build this kind of product or whatever? Is it good for society, whatever? Um, which is a great question to ask, but most businesses are not asking that question. They're asking, given that we're gonna do this, how can we do it in a way that mitigates risk? And the problem is that when they standardly confront the kinds of ethical issues that companies are getting in trouble for, they don't know how to systematically identify uh, and then mitigate those risks because ethical risk is in, in the context that we're talking about is not something that they've ever been trained to do. And so what's really been interesting for me is to see, is, is to marry the systematicity and rigor of academic inquiry with the sort of practical relevance of business needs. Um, and that's what I've found um, both sort of educational for myself, but also extremely interesting to see that that's how, you know, you can really get successful operation, uh, successful operationalizing of ethics. What, a, what an amazing journey from theory to practice and, and realizing yeah. the, the gaps between the two. Uh, great lesson uh, to have shared. It's been a pleasure to have you, Reed, on the show. Yeah, We're pleasure. up on time. Uh, it's been very educational. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, stay with us as we wrap up. We have one more show tomorrow on Thursday. Yes, we do. Uh, we, uh, we actually, someone who joined us on the recap show on Monday uh, right. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, by the way, if you're watching this and you've seen any of the shows this past week, you can join us on Monday on the recap show. We would love to have you be one of the people's right here on the video, just providing your input. We're welcoming guests and audiences to participate on the recap show on Monday. It's 10 minutes. That's all we do is a quick recap of all the shows. What do we got coming up tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific again? Tomorrow, Tulu, we're going to be speaking with uh, Sammy James, the CEO of uh, Speak to Leads, a sales automation platform. And the topic is going to be, I like the name, you know, because it's the squiggly path to success. So let's see how that turns out. Uh, we're going to be speaking about his 10 years of failures as he quote unquote, 10 years of failures, fear and finding our way. So that's tomorrow. And also, of course, as Tulio mentioned, Monday, we're going to be recapping this conversation uh, with Reed and uh, the one from yesterday and the one from tomorrow. So join us on Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here at Dojo Live. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks so much. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.